Hi, everyone. Um, thank you for inviting me, and thank you, Kia, for your presentation. That was really inspirational. So, I will be talking, or maybe more reflecting, about urban mystery or urban joy. Is that a matter of place? When I got this theme of today, I started thinking about wanting to go back to the very basic. Like, what is it like being in the city today? No technology, no nothing, just what is it like walking on the street? And I found this old folder with a lot of images that I've called urban misery. And uh, it just dawned on me, as we've said many times today, uh, in different versions, how much the context influences us as beings, as human beings, how it influences our choices, you know, making it really hard for us to choose to walk or to cycle sometimes. And this is language, this communication that tells you who's prioritized or who's not. And believe me when I say this, I didn't intend this to be depressing at all, actually. So, you know, when I saw Liam Young's film, I, th I felt safe. You know, nothing can be more dystopic than that. But my intention was actually to give everyone that struggles with, you know, staying healthy, being healthy, um, a bit of slack and saying that some places makes it so much harder to be well than others. And it doesn't really matter what we call it or how we brand things, right? It's still the experience of being there at eye level, experience the city. And to be honest, sometimes it's just pure pain. <laughs> so urban misery or urban joy, yeah, I think it's definitely a matter of place. But as we have also heard so much, uh, and especially you, Kia, with SOMA, we're not, it's not just about infrastructure, biking or walking, accessibility. We're human beings. We're sensitive beings. We're driven by emotions. We're social animals. We really need social connections. I think that is the essence of the city, is actually meeting other people. So now, today, when loneliness is a major health issue, the environment needs to help us to get out to meet other people, not hinder us. And there's this uh, far too little famous guy who designed the urban planner of the Boa One area here in Malmö. He talked about architecture being manipulation. And I react like, oh, I don't want to be manipulated. I want to be in control of my life. But if urban design actually makes me get to know my neighbors or, you know, actually manipulates my kids to be outside more and learn how to bike, bike, bicycle at an early age, I say thank you. You know, what if the urban environment can stimulate my senses to the degree that I actually become more mindful and more present in the moment? Or just surprise me? So make me see the world in a different way? Or just be so seductive so that I cannot not play or climb even though I'm 50? And I think, what if we could build that breathing lamp in the scale of a space and you lie on that soma mat and breathe together, that would be amazing, right? 
So anything in the city that can actually help us in a natural way to meet people or see people, only see people that are different from ourselves, will help us to become more trusting and more compassionate and less scared of the unknown and, and the differences. So just summing everything up, what I really want to tell you all is that if you, by any chance, end up taking the car to the gym, taking the escalator up, going inside an air-conditioned room, simulating walking on a step-up class, or simulating bicycling in the, in the spinning class, you know, it might not be your fault. It could just be that you're in the wrong place. So, yes. Cities change our culture, as our tools, as so much around us. And I don't mean to take actually any responsibility away from anyone, especially not my, me, um, because we, you know, if we can change the culture through a three city, we can change spaces to also help us become more well. So I want you all, bring you all back to New York, 2008, when I started working here for the Department of Transportation, uh, it was actually, the assignment was to change people's mindsets about how you can use the city, how you can spend time there. And Broadway, I thought it would be this iconic, cool street, and it was apparently it's just like the, the street without seats. And this is where I learned for the first time the word loitering. When I asked, like, how can you not put, you know, benches on Broadway? And they said, nah. I mean, we don't really want people loitering. <laughs> so that means that the, the urban environment has become so hostile that anyone that chooses freely to sit down is really seen as suspicious. Why would they do that? So better just remove all the seats to not have people that are not welcome or whatever to sit down. And now we can see this. We talked about this yesterday that, you know, this defensive design, you get, oh, I want to see it. And then suddenly it's one of those that you just slide down so you can't really sit. So, I mean, I just think that what if they knew that having people spending time in a space is one of the best things that can happen to a city, and especially old ladies. It's actually something that we call the grandma effect, and that's because if you have old ladies sitting in a space, that's the best indicator for a space being safe, because they, together with children and young people, are always, or not always, but most of the time, underrepresented in the public realm. And if you have old ladies sitting, everyone actually behaves better. <laughs> so Times Square, um, at that moment, 2008, there was no sign of a square. We measured, we actually could see that 90% of the space was for cars, but that was actually just 10% of the users. And on the other hand, you had people crowding on this little traffic island. They are 90% of users and then have 10% of the space. It doesn't seem fair. So today we think, you know, it's obvious what to do. We turn it into a real square. And this is not new, as in since the 60s, people have been talking about pedestrianizing broadways and Times Square. But the question is how you do it. You know, how do you overcome the barriers? And the barriers being the culture that the city itself had created. So when we say we pedestrianize Broadway, like no way. You know, this is the culture. It's in our blood to drive. You cannot change that. That's against everything that is us. 
But then the way to sort of overcome that was to say, well, okay, let's just try it. You know, no worries, it's just a full-scale test. What happens if we actually turn off the traffic and just paint on the ground, put like movable chairs and umbrellas and see if people, how people think about it. The, the, uh, it had to be able to be removed within 48 hours. So it was truly temporary. And the thing is that people did like it. You know, instant change of the space changes people's behavior. So 84% more people stayed, lingered. Suddenly loitering was actually public life again. And as much as 40% less in, um, injurious of pedestrians. And when we asked New Yorkers, not the visitors, not the tourists, what they thought about it, 75% said, yeah, we think this is actually a good idea. So we tested this also different, or we, it was actually Department of Transportation doing it. Um, so I should definitely give them all the credit. Um, Jeanette Sadekan, the commissioner of that time, fierce lady, watch her on YouTube talking about this. Um, so anyway, we tried, so because Broadway was long, so it wasn't only Times Square. This is Herald Square, the change. This is by the Flatiron Building. You know, before you saw people, you know, really trying to paint the building and now they could actually sit down uh, with a coffee and, and enjoy that space. And also things like not closing it off, but testing different solutions. Everything with paint, like simple, no technology, just doing it, testing it. And for me, doing this kind of work or proposing changes to Broadway, so scared. Like it was really intimidating. What if people don't like it? What if it's chaos? And it was. It was so many places that it didn't work that had, you know, we painted cycle lanes, but cars were driving on the cycle lane and a lot of things. It wasn't perfect at all, basically. But because it was temporary and easy, it could be redone and we can change the design so that it actually helped people to behave and to be and to communicate to together in a good way. And this was a good way, I think, to do and test things in the real life before deciding to make it uh, proper and permanent when we really invest money in the space. So I was at home um, at the time and I had just on maternity leave, I just had my first baby. And my colleague, he sent me this little video clip of a snowball fight on Times Square. And I was sitting there, baby, snowball fight, this must be the top of my career ever. Like it can only go down. <laughs> Maybe it has as well. Um, but it was really truly amazing to see how they used the space. And what was good was that this wasn't a project, this was a process. And because it was a process, it could also be scaled up and rolled out in all of the cities. So the Department of Transportation, they did what they, sort of a program, they said we will fund a series of plazas, new plazas all over the city, Bronx and Queens and Brooklyn. And we will ask NGOs, local communities, of where to do them. You know, we can have the funding, but we don't know 
where is a good place to place them? So over the last 10 years, 70 new plazas has been built all over the city. And they're simple, you know. We got the opportunity to look at seven of these just to investigate the social impact because me and others were a little bit worried. Um, would this, you know, it actually create displacement or what's the word? I forget it. Um, you know, when, when, yeah, when people are pushed out because property prices move up. Um, thank you, gentrification. <laughs> mm. But what we found, at least in those seven plazas, was that they were really strong local assets. So this plaza, for instance, and across actually all seven, um, something like 67%, no, 72% of them um, that used the plaza, they came from like a mile radio. So it was like really locally users, local users. And also that people cared about the place. When we asked, would you pick up a litter if you saw it? 67% said yes. So it, there was a sense of ownership. And also when looking at um, <coughs> The social dimension, we asked, since the plaza opened, do you recognize or do you know more people in your neighborhood? And in the outer borough plaza, so not Manhattan, but the other ones, 75% said yes. So those plazas, those simple changes really fostered social connections. So urban misery or urban joy, a matter of the everyday places. I think there's something about that everyday. Alice, she referred back to Liam about the everyday, you know, it's already here and it's digital and it's, I don't know. I think everyday is this. I mean, this is Haslev. It's a small Danish city. It's like 10,000, 11,000 inhabitants. Netto, you go and go, you know, you, you get grocery um, every day or every other day or once a week or whenever. We spend so much time in our everyday places and they're not really taken care of in the same way as others. Just to give a perspective, 600,000 people a year visit Netto. It's the same amount of people that visit Louisiana. And that's the fifth biggest attraction in Denmark. Of course, it's different types of visitors. These are unique and the other one are reoccurring, but it still gives some sort of a perspective. What if we could give some of that care to those everyday spaces? You know, whether it's just simple thing. And I think that this is my message is, or I, I you know, my, what makes me think that there's hope is that it's not so hard. It's not so expensive. It's not so difficult to be kind to people. If you bring joy inside, outside of the supermarket or, you know, this is in Copenhagen, just taking away a slip lane, planting a tree, and you have a local meeting place. Or in Brighton, when we redesigned um, the space and we made it into front of the first uh, shared spaces so that cars and pedestrians were alike, 600% more people choose to say or just giving a more comfortable space to wait for the bus. This is an Örestad. Ironically enough, this was a project about protecting from, or making, uh, protecting from air pollution. So creating a space where you, um, the air quality was better and it became so popular from the kids going there to smoke. <laughs> and it was temporary, so it's gone and we can learn. But 
just saying that this can, that, you know, it doesn't matter where, this is in Moscow, this is Tashkaya, just taking away parking planting some extra green, making the space nicer, or in Amman, Jordan, around their great mosque, cleaning it out from cars, and just there's a space for the everyday, for them to meet. Or the very simplest, like just painting the crossing where people already are passing the street and taking down some fences, making a space. This is in Sao Paulo, in Brazil. So, um, Looking how I'm doing for time. <laughs> One minute. No, three minutes. Thank you. Um, because I think it's interesting. Everything that we take for granted, our everyday spaces, sometimes you only realize what the value is when, it, when it's all gone and what, you really, you know, what really matters to us. So I went uh, traveled to Christchurch after the earthquake 2011 um, to help the city, uh, the government, uh, the planning department to do the recovery plan. And this was a city that about 50% of the downtown was just gone and they kind of closed it in so it was this red zone. You couldn't enter. And what I think is amazing, coming back also to, to the previous speakers um, and, and about food, I forget his name right now, um, sorry. Liam, no. Jordi, 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 thank you. But the whole concept of memory and how that is attached to space, because what happened here is that space were lost, but really the memories of what the city actually was, that didn't go away, that was still there. So finding a way, so my colleague had already been there, my David Sim, uh, for a while, working with the council to collect all these memories, all these dreams from people and what matters to them to, to rebuild. And we got about 100,000 individual responses and that's one third of the whole population. And worked hard not to talk about the city as this idea from above buildings, starting with buildings, but talking about what is it like being in the city, being a human being. So everyone had to build themselves first as a little Lego person, and then around that, build what, they ma what matters to them. And suddenly it was completely different things. It was life, it was connections, it was play, it was places. So when the red zone opened, the first thing that happened wasn't to start building roads and building buildings, it was to bring back life. And it was to bring back those memories and create connections and reasons for people to meet. And I think also just creating, recreating the sound of places. Like here we have the da uh, dance mat so you could put your iPod and the play music and the lights went on. And you hear laughter again from misery. So putting back joy instead of misery or bowl in the middle of the night. Or even before electricity was back in the city, doing this not driving but biking, be, uh, cinema, so that was sort of the generator of the shared experience of watching the movie. And another thing that I think I bring with me from that experience was that people, you know, there was 
a lot of uh, a lot of people wanting to, of course to build back the cathedral and some of those iconic buildings and places that were lost but the top thing was to build it back better than it was so actually one of the first thing that happened and that people really put as a top priority was to open the city up to the river that that connection wasn't even there before so the earth the desire to make it better than it was so the last thing I will bring with me as a last thought, um, important thing, is that urban misery or urban joy, it's actually so much, maybe not about place, but a matter of who. So we know we're all so different, and the way we experience place is also extremely different, depending on age or background or memories or things that has happened to us. So I think Johanna said in the beginning of this conference, remember to ask and not presume what other people experience. And I think that that is maybe the most important thing that we have to remember when we develop the city collectively, and develop everything around us, is how can we do that together and how can we find the ours instead of the me? What is the collective approach? And if you're curious about this, I would strongly recommend you to go see this exhibition to really uh, incredible industrial PhD um, colleagues of mine that have worked on this project called Urban Belonging, and working with minority groups and to see where and when do they belong to the city. Thank you.